0: Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Jorge Juan Rodriguez V talks to Reverend Dr. Liz Bayer-Riz about digital platforms for popular theological education. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org.
1: Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Dr. Jorge Juan Rodriguez V, and I'm the Associate Director for Strategic Programming at the Hispanic Summer Program and Visiting Assistant Professor of Historical Studies at Union Theological Seminary. And I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Liz Valle Ruiz. Liz, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Yes. Hi, everybody. My name is Reverend Dr. Liz Valle Ruiz. I teach worship and preaching at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm from
1: Puerto Rico. So we're here today to talk about digital platforms, public scholarship, and the dissemination of theological knowledge. So this, I would love to start and hear a little bit about the types of digital platforms you're using, how you got started doing that, and maybe if you have an example of some of the work that you're doing there.
0: Well, I just started, so this is, um, very interesting for me. So that's why we are both here because I consider Jorge to be an expert and me to be a newbie. Um, I have been trying to um, go ahead and embody or implement the ideas that we hear while we are in in our doctoral studies that we should have an online presence and have our own um, website and use social media and all of that. Um, So that's, I've been trying to think how to go about that for a long time. And finally, this December, when I was about to to turn nine years old of being an ordained minister of the Word and Sacraments, I decided to invite everybody to support my beginnings in um, being a social media presence. And so I created, created an instagram account I, i've had an instagram account for myself for a long time but for professional purposes as we are, are talking about here um i invited people to nine different ways of giving me a gift one of them was to follow my professional instagram accounts or my facebook professional face pages facebook pages for professional purposes um, to um come to an event that we were having in which we would like stream live from Zoom into Facebook. I also have a YouTube channel. I've had that one for a while where I put like, because I'm a performer, sometimes I, am, I record what I perform. And also sometimes I posted some like short um, lectures or teachings, not my preferred style of teaching, but something that sometimes is needed. Which brings me to you because I've seen that you teach people through short videos, um, especially I remember um, in these like holidays that are very problematic for Latinx communities. I've seen you like explain or sometimes like terms, what's the difference between Hispanic and Latinx and all of those things. So what led you to get started and and what platforms do you use?
1: Yeah, so I would say that for me, I've never seen my scholarly trajectory outside of the realm of what I'll call public scholarship. And so by public scholarship, digital platforms, I, I see them um, as a similar conversation. Digital platforms are the way in which we disseminate public scholarship. And so by public scholarship, I mean taking the complex, sometimes um very specific ideas we get in the academy, and then just kind of like flipping them around and making them uh, more accessible to a wider audience who may or may not have access to the privileges we have in the academy of libraries of time to read of all these things. So you know I recently did a, a video for Union, which is the one I think you're referencing, where I had my job was I had one minute to explain where the term Hispanic came from for Hispanic Heritage Month. and so. Part of the work of that is I've spent a lot of time, many years, um, doing public scholarship and seeking training in public scholarship also. So I was an an alum of Sacred Rights, which is a a program that trains scholars of religion how to do public scholarship. Um, And I've done some consulting work with them since then. But one thing that always stuck out to me of that training was, no matter what kind of public scholarship you do, if you have one minute or 30 seconds, or 500 words, or three hours, what is the one thing you want people to walk away with? And that's kind of shaped how I've approached a lot of the platforms I use. So. You know, on my own, I have a Twitter account that I've had for years and uh, Instagram, although my Instagram is mostly memes and dog pics, which is just the most blessed place uh, I have encountered digitally. Um, but I also have published for many um, publications, Out, Latino Rebels, etc. Um, I have my own Medium page uh, and my own website. And for me in all of these things, uh, the question has always been, if I have the privilege and access to be in the academy and to spend so much time learning, um, how can I take this knowledge and make it legible, accessible um, and really democratize it for folks who can't be in the academy for a variety of reasons, including but not limited to institutional racism and all the other realities that happen in the academy. So I think for me, that's part of what drew me there. And in many respects, I, my struggle was more so that I knew very early on I didn't want to pursue a tenure track job. Um, I knew very on in my Ph.D. that that was my my own personal calling and part of that stem from my own experiences with public scholarship that I didn't want the type of writing that I did or the type of speaking that I did to be limited to or restricted by a very real need and an important need to do a peer reviewed scholarship that would get me tenure. I think that that scholarship is profoundly important and any public scholarship depends on peer reviewed publications. And I think for me, when I think about vocation and where my gifts uh, connect to the needs of my community, I don't, I feel that my own voice really sits more strongly in public scholarship um, as a way that I find a lot of life and a lot of opportunities to translate what I know to broader audiences. So Liz, one question I wanted to ask you is that when you started your reflection, one thing that you said was that it's taking you a a while to get into digital platforms and into doing this type of um, scholarly engagement across these new venues. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about um, if it was hesitancy before, if it was you wanted to learn more before jumping in, what pushed you over the edge to actually engage these?
0: Well, before it was definitely, um, I would say both and more, like hesitancy, because I I don't feel I feel that technology is kind of like a, like not in my natural skill set. It's something that I have to be very intentional about learning, and so I wanted to learn before actually doing it. And I I still think that I'm not. Um, as I said, I'm not an expert, I'm still learning. I'm not sure what pushed me over the edge other than um, I cannot keep waiting, you know, like, oh, I think it has to do with what you were saying about like, um, you know, we have to publish books. And, and a friend reminded me when I pitch my first book, the publisher is gonna check out my social media presence and count how many like, followers I have and all of this stuff how many likes and all these things and I thought well I guess I must right even though I do know scholars that do not um have a strong like multimedia presence online digitally which I have a question for you about like what's the difference between like an app and a platform and all of those things but um to to finish um with this line of thought so it was it was that sense of urgency of like, oh my God, I'm about to have like my tenure track review and I have to have like some presence and numbers and all of this. But I, I think most importantly, because those that those calls that I made back in November in preparation for the December events, were not so much for my leastvalued.com stuff, but, they were for something that has been in my heart for 20 something years. So it has to do with my sense of call. And you mentioned your sense of call and you have you, you use the phrase public scholarship. I love that phrase. Um, some people call it theological activists, right? Uh, um, activists, theological activists because you're in the public square sharing your theological knowledge. And I have been doing that my whole life, even though even though I had not like a formal training, but I used to do it like literally in the public squares. Like, I'm not kidding. I would go and perform in public squares in Puerto Rico um, after with people, I've never done it by myself. Um, So I had a theater troupe, but then, you know, COVID accelerated, I think the development of the use of um, digital tools and and so it's like we don't have a choice. Like really, this is where people are, and especially the digital natives. And we need to learn. So here we go, ready or not. Here we go. <laughs> and so, um, and and I, as a as a scholar that studies um, worship now, worship. Most most churches have now a component of doing worship online. Uh, before it was like a very small number, but now it's like almost everybody, even though there's still churches that are like refusing to. Um, so that's that's part of it. It's my sense of calling. And so theologically, I say that it has a little bit to do with remnants of being um an evangelical um mm-hmm. uh, growing up, in which like um we take very seriously this idea of um I would call it now proselytizing, but sharing the word um and the, the the big commission right and and the idea of the incarnation so theologically i still tie it to the idea of the incarnation that we um translate the gospel or embody or package the gospel in the ways that this that society speak that the languages that society speak and right now there's a lot of that online so we we must and so This takes me to say and I will probably repeat it that diverse digital platforms are an excellent tool for scholars to provide popular and accessible. Theological education It's like having another set of students out there in the world, rather than in our classrooms and so i've been trying one of the things i've been trying to do is to Okay, what it is that i've been teaching these. um, These month. And how can I encapsulate those nuggets of wisdom in like posts, one sentence posts with a graphic to accompany it. And that's one thing I've been trying. So back to the question from the expert, Could you explain to us the difference between like, what, what do we talk about when we're talking about like social platforms versus like apps, right? And do you have some tips for Beginners like me or people who are even listening to us, other scholars who want to do this and haven't started, um, what tips can you give us to get us started and do it well and efficiently?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think first, let me just go back to one thing that I heard you say, which is that, you know, you're talking about having your your theater group and literally being in a public square. And I think it's important to note that like public scholarship isn't just digital platforms. I think that that's where this distinction between public scholarship and digital platforms is actually helpful. Um, because, you know, I have I have colegas who go and teach political education in El Viejo San Juan, you know, that little that little square in the middle con el cafecito, that's right there in the corner. I don't remember what it's called, uh, if you remember what that square is called, but they literally just go there on Sundays and they like bring copies of Marx or excerpts of Marx and they just read with people and they're like, uh, you know, trying to figure out what does this mean about like the colonial situation? What does this mean about, um, you know, the history of the island, et cetera? Like all of that is also public scholarship, right? It's taking scholarly inquiry, scholarly questions, scholarly pedagogy, and bringing it elsewhere, and people have been doing this forever, you know, and I think our communities particularly have been doing this forever, even those who weren't necessarily in the academy per se. Um, I think about many of the revolutionary groups, um, like the Young Lords, like the Black Panthers, um, these groups that, you know, some of them had individuals among them who did go to college were academics, but many of them had high schoolers. Many of them had, you know, just community members, abuelitas, people who maybe never even went to school, but they still felt the need to ask, how do we take scholarship, theory. They were reading, you had 16-year-olds in the 70s reading Franz Fanon, reading uh, Marx, really Mao, Mao Zedong, like reading these really, really thick theoretical texts and asking, how does this apply to our world today? And I think that for me is really the the impetus of it, which is, you know, as a formally former evangelical myself, I just, it's, it's stuck with me what you said too, because it's also this thing of just like, You know, the one thing that has stuck with me from evangelicalism, even though I've left it in many ways, is if something isn't applicable to the world, it doesn't matter. And I think that that is also something that resonates with so many other places. I think, um, you know, there's connections with all sorts of social movements that have a similar perspective. But I digress. It's neither here nor there. That wasn't your question at all. I just wanted to build on that. Um, But your question, I mean, I think that there is... um, I think the question of what is a platform is both a literal question and a theoretical question. So literally, I think that a platform can be um, a place that you control yourself to disseminate knowledge digitally, right? So I often think about a platform literally in that way, being like your own website where you're publishing your own material that is your material. And people go back to your website for this curated collection of your work versus an app, which is um, something like Twitter where you're sharing it, but you aren't necessarily controlling how it looks, how it's formatted, right? You're, yes, you can share, uh, edit some things, but in general, you're using someone else's technology. Whereas in a website, you can curate a whole visual experience, right? But I also think platform is a more theoretical term that I think is important to sit with, right? Because I think platform isn't just, is there a digital space you use? Platform is, do you have a voice that is recognized publicly and that such that when you say something, people listen, right? And so you can have a platform and really all these different places, your website, your Twitter, your Instagram, et cetera, are just tools to use your voice to advance a message that allows other people to engage and be able to listen. And so I think that for me then in terms of where do we get started, I think part of the question is twofold. One is why do you wanna do this to begin with, right? I think everyone needs to have, especially scholars, need to have a serious conversation about what is it that's driving them to do public scholarship, to use digital platforms in diverse ways, to try to cultivate and create a platform that can impact the world for good. Um, And part of the reason it's important to ask that question is because doing this work inherently has risks associated, right? If you're on the tenure clock, for example, it might be that someone on your tenure committee doesn't see this work as legitimate legible scholarship, and that might affect your ability to get tenure, right? So you have to ask, if I'm doing this work, what is the net good I'm pushing for that outweighs the possible risks associated? Additionally, if you go, if you start developing a public platform online, especially in this age of trolls and harassers, you know, you need to be aware of the ways that you might be um, attacked so on social media, or that if you do something and mess up and write something that maybe later on you disagree with, you need to know how to then move in such a way with integrity where you can both lock everything down if you're being subject to unfair attacks by trolls or whatever the case may be, or move with integrity in the other example in such a way where if you write something that later you disagree with, then you have the ability to come back and say like, actually, this is how my thought has evolved because I have new information. So I think all of these things go back to this question of why are you doing this to begin with? So that's one. And two shortly is how, right? How do you want to do it? Are you a writer? And you really see your way of doing this type of work through op-eds, through think pieces, whatever case may be. And do you want those to be hosted on your own website that doesn't have the parameters of a publication? Or do you wanna write for Truthout and have that audience also uh, talked about for the Washington Post, for your local newspaper? Or are you more about you know creative visual things? So you wanna design graphics that go on Instagram and cultivate a platform there or you wanna create the dopest TikTok account, right? Like whatever the tool is, I think that the that is to me a secondary question. The how is a secondary question to the why. Why are you doing this to begin with? And what are you willing to negotiate through having a public platform um, in order to push the net good in the world that you see is necessary? That's
0: awesome, thank you very much. I'm glad that I went back to the sense of call because um at the end of the day that's why i agreed to do this this podcast with you because um i am very committed to popular education and i know that there are lots of people out there that have theological questions but do not have the means or the interest or the energy to go to a seminary to get answers to those questions and and we we are perfect bridges between um, all that knowledge that has been um, generated in academic spaces. And we can share with the whole world in different ways, as you said, like in the plaza, reading together, or online, or in different ways. So thank you for teaching us that. And so that's why I want my colleagues or whoever is listening to this, that. Um, these digital platforms are good spaces for us to teach, for us to um, share and disseminate theological knowledge. And I wanna emphasize that the the way to go about it is to first figure out your why, and then um, think later about the how. And one of the things that I that stuck out to me when you were talking about the how has to do with uh, one's gifts. Like you used the example of like, Are you a writer? Are you um, a designer or or an artist? And that has been part of the struggle for me because like theater is so much like live and people, you you know, when you record, and I said, I've been recording um, my theater plays, it's not the same. It can be boring to death (laughs) to see a recording um, of a theater play now video recording that was designed in that way is a different it's a different genre it's a different art and so i've been having to learn how to do that um and and produce videos that were designed as videos right so that's a whole different um art said a whole different way I got about uh, sharing knowledge and so that has been part of the struggle for me that most of my gifts are very much for live encounters and and digital platforms kind of so do you know of any like tools that allow for that um like for websites that are not necessarily just curated static material but more like live interaction with folks how to invite them into conversation or something like that does that
1: Yeah, no, I've definitely seen websites. I mean, I'm a historian, right? So I've definitely seen websites, for example, that have like interactive timelines as one way of doing it, right? Where that invite people to like put in some of their important days, whether it be their birthday or whatever the case may be. And then their their own timeline becomes part of a broader timeline uh, about the civil rights movement or about, you know, world wars or whatever the case may be. And so it's a way of inviting people digitally to actually see how they themselves are situated in a broader history, which is the pedagogical point of this type of public, public curation um, through a digital medium. But, you know, I was going to ask you because I feel like One of the things I hear you saying also is that different forms of public scholarship or public art have to have different mediums of engagement, both on the front end and on the back end. So what I mean by that is that I'm not an artist in that way at all, so... um, I'm very much deferring to your expertise and speaking uh, with very little experience. But part of what I'm hearing in your discussion here is that if you were going to do, or rather that you could functionally do the same play two completely different ways for different audiences. So how you would do it for an audience that's right there with you would require a completely different curation from a videography that is maybe in the play or, you know, not just recording it from the outside, but actually part of it facilitating that type of visual engagement so that digital audience can see and feel part of the play itself. And I'm wondering what opportunities you see for that different type of curation where it's not just that you're doing a live performance and recording it, but rather that you're thinking intentionally about how the videography itself is geared towards a digital audience that when they're watching it from wherever they are watching it from, they themselves become part of it because it was designed from the beginning to include them within that mode. Does that make sense, the question?
0: Yes, the, the question does make sense. And I think I'll have to think further about it. I, I can I can tell you where I am right now, but the question itself invite me to keep growing um, on that aspect. So. I do have um, a bachelor's degree in in education, a major in theater from the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras campus. And they teach us what, one of the basic things regarding acting is you don't act the same way in a theater than, in, than for TV, right? Right. Uh, w- one example, just briefly. Um, in the theater, you have to project not only voice, but also movement because mm. you need... The movement and the voice have to be clear to the person who is sitting in the very last row. Now, TV is the opposite because the camera is right there on you. Yeah. So even, even the the any tiny movement, any whisper can be captured by the microphone and the and the camera. So that's just an example of how they are different. Um, and then the thing that I have been um, struggling with on how to move um, my performing arts to to digital platforms, which I've I've always refused to do because it's not the same art. I'm not attracted to that art, to 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 film or to video. Um, is the the presence of the audience. So in the theater, you can sense that you can sense yeah. the audience's reaction, and even if you play the same play if you perform the same way to the very same audience twice because it's live it's never gonna be the same one. This yeah. is like we know this and preachers know this and speakers public speakers know it if they if they give the very same lecture only unless, unless it is recorded it's never gonna be the same. Yeah you know so the recording is always gonna be the same but but if you're live you're not making the exact same pauses in the exact same places and even if it's the same audience they're not going to react in the very same ways and so in theater you you need to be aware of the responses and adapt to that like if people are laughing or clapping too loud you need to pause long enough for them to be able to hear the next line right Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen in video or film Um, so some of the things that I have done uh, for example, I've been um, experimenting with uh, the art of burlesque as a means for preaching. Mm-hmm. So was to bring the camera in for things that are for the key moments in the plot that I really want people to to focus on. And so um, I I did a burlesque piece for a live audience in a very small, like in a classroom, Literally, uh, think of Sunday Bible school classrooms. Mm -hmm. That's the size of the room that we were in. And so I was performing on a table in a corner. And and the audience was like, imagine 10 to 12 people standing up there, like less than six feet apart from me. And then I wanted to record that. But knowing all of these things we've been talking about, what I did was like, um, I had several cameras to take the same thing from different angles. So I just mm. like grew from all the experience of, of going to, thea- to the movie theater. And, yeah. and said, what do they do? You know, you have like white shots, you have like, and I'm not training the art of film. So, but intuitively that's what I did. And one of the ways in which I wanted the audience to be, to feeling that they were involved was to look at the camera literally like at one point Uh, in the live edition, I had the audience, um, somebody from the audience open handcuffs that I was wearing. Hmm. So I did that to the camera. Instead of giving the key to a person, there's no person there. I gave the key to the camera and and kind of showed the handcuffs so they can imagine that they are the ones um, who I am asking for help to get out of these handcuffs, right? So that's one example that comes to mind on how I have played with, with this difference in the medium in the media but also how I have played with how to call in the audience and integrate them into the into the static yeah. <laughs> curated art that videography is.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah and I think two things that stand out to me from what you're saying are one that part of what we need to think about when we're doing um, using digital platforms to do our type of public scholarship, public theology, whatever you want to call it, is how the method of delivery changes and challenges the content we're trying to present. And I think that I often, I use those two words, content delivery in part, because those are key terms that I use when I teach. So in all of my classes, I have, um, a public speaking component, whether it be a lecture or a presentation, and actually, in a lot of my classes, I also have them do public scholarship assignments. So, in this course I'm teaching right now on Latinx religious activism, students have to write either write a 500 word op-ed or do a two minute TikTok about a figure, event, or movement that we're studying in class and their relationship with religion. And part of the goal of the assignment is that it's a few things. One of them is public scholarship forces you to figure out how to say a lot in a little bit of time, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't necessarily give the whole introduction to a whole field as you could in an opening lecture or in an 8,000 word academic article. Rather, the goal is to give people an invitation to study more, an invitation to reflect on their own life, right? And as a result, part of the question that I want students to reflect on in these twofold ideas of content and delivery is content. What is the point or what is the argument or what is, there, what is the narration that the person is trying to give you? And delivery is both, how did the delivery uh, impact and influence the content that we received but also how did the delivery place limitations on the type of content we could receive, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking on these two registers, I think it's important to always ask, how is it that we can also think about the ways that our delivery is going to change based on the technology that we're using? And I think that your example of like, Putting multiple cameras and putting the handcuffs right up to the camera is a great example of this, right? Because if you're in person, even if the content is similar, the delivery is going to be completely different when you have a live audience. Now, the second thing that I was thinking about as you were talking too was the the importance of thinking outside the idea of the individual scholar. So I think a lot of times, how we've been presented public scholarship historically has been around the figure of the public intellectual, whereby the public intellectual is this like larger than life figure that's called upon to speak on all sorts of topics, right? But in reality, there's all these other relationships behind that scholar that's helping them be able to do that that performance publicly, right? Whether it be a public speaking performance, whether it be a, a art piece, whatever the case may be. And I think it's important for us to reflect on not just what are what are our giftings and the ways that we can contribute to community through this way, but also in what places do we have to build community with others whose giftings also come alongside ours? So, for me, for example, I am not a visual artist. It's just not what I do. I I part of the reason that I love my partner is because she is able to take a space and make it look gorgeous and I just mm-hmm. and make it feel like home right mm-hmm. like make it feel give it an affect give space and affect through how it's decorated how it's the colors that are chosen the the scenes that are are, are put in place in the room the ways things are organized I I just don't have that gift my mind doesn't work that way so what I've had to do over the years is always come alongside people who do have that gift so for example my website I partnered with this uh, organization um, called the the goodness gracious I'm blanking on their name the feminist collective um, that empowers women to learn how to code and build do website design mm-hmm. and Um, I came alongside them because my friend owns the business and part of what my friend asked me when we were starting the design, she was like, why do you want to work with us? And, um, what do you hope to get out of this partnership? And I told her, I want to work with you because I think that a website is important for the type of impact I want to have in the type of work that I do, but I have no idea how to do this not just technically because i do know html but i don't know how to do this in terms of like curating a digital space that f- evokes feeling as soon as someone opens it and then her second question was her second question was how do you want people to feel when they mm-hmm. open your website and i told her i said i want them to feel like home mm-hmm. and I told her, I don't know what that looks like or what that is like at all. I'm just telling you the things that I, you asked me to talk about my feelings. And so I'm talking about my feelings um, and the ways that art evokes that. And she created a website with a color palette that's you enter and it's calm. It's a font that's calm. The images that uh, my partner's a photographer, she took these photos. And what I love about her photography is that she's able to to capture affect. I feel like there's a lot of photography, especially professional photography, that's just like a blank headshot, whatever the case may be, but you don't know anything about anyone's personality through the photo. Um, And so I wanted to, you know, work with my partner, not just because she's my partner, but because of the ways that she can capture feeling through photos. All which is to say, the point I'm making is that like, that's not my strength, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: I am blessed to be surrounded by people for whom that is their strength. And so part of the work of digital platforms of public scholarship is also asking where where do I thrive and where do I need to build with other people who thrive in other ways so that together we can cultivate a, a community that's able to create a platform in that theoretical sense that's able to create a message that invites people into a greater work. Um, yeah, so I'm wondering, what do you think about that, especially as you're thinking about your own work and transitioning from these live performances, or not transitioning, but rather engaging <laughs> these live, yeah, engaging these live performances and then engaging digital performances.
0: Yes, um, I love that you are going back to to the gifts of the person, right? Like you're acknowledging your own um, your strength and your the absences, right? Like I, I was saying before, my own as well. And I love that because one of the, that's one of the things that I um, that I emphasize in in all of my teaching is um, th- that we're diverse, right? Like that we all have different gifts, and so how can we draw from our best gifts to communicate whatever it is that we want to communicate? And so that is very liberating for me to hear. So that there is a way in which I can use digital platforms and still be drawing on my best skills and gifts. Um when when I was uh, before I launched any website and I was um still doing the the studying, I consulted experts too, and I was um the this thing of branding, which is very problematic for me because it's like I it sounds so capitalist, you know, and I'm like, that's not uh, that's not how I wanna go about this. And the best practices are so built into the system of capitalism. So how can you design your own website? or create it in such a way that doesn't reiterate those systems that we're trying to take down. But that was the question that for me was very interesting too. How do you want people to feel when they see your logo, for example? Um, I ended up doing my own logo, um, if, but because like nobody could like, it's precisely because these experts are so entrenched into the, these are the best practices and so, I I I just learned what are the best practices, but then like moved away. Like for example, from professional photos, for me it was like, okay, diversity it's important to me and you want me to use photos of diverse people, right? I wanted to use real photos of me and my friends, my friends mostly. Um, I had like already asked them for permission, all of that, but they were not professional looking enough for some of my consultants. And and part of my brand, if I'm gonna use that term, part of what distinguishes my work, what I identify the most in the world of theology is um, resisting resisting respectability politics. And so professional photos for me don't work to convey what I want to convey, or most importantly, to do what I want to do So here going to your, the, the distinction you made between like the content and the delivery, the delivery, the form of delivery and how does it make a difference? Um, you know, the content is diversity, but that's like, so everybody's doing diversity these days. Right. And so, um, I have been drawing a lot. Uh, so what I want to share with the world is what makes me come alive in the Howard Thurman ways. Right. Like Um, don't ask um, what the need what the the world needs rather ask what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is more people who who come alive Mm. so to come alive in front of an audience now drawing from trauma theory is contagious Um, people can come alive too with you when they see you come alive and and they also can imitate that. Instead of imitating you, they feel liberated to be themselves. If they see you being yourself, they feel liberated to be in themselves. So the the other story that comes to mind, came to mind when you were speaking was um, this engagement with the, with the students or mm-hmm. the audience in some cases, right? Like I too, one because I'm a practical theologian. They all there's always a, a project they have to come up with, and so that has been a challenge. And so now, using your definition of platform, this summer, the past summer or oh, summer of 2022, I taught some courses uh, while on sabbatical. I taught um, not in seminaries. I just created my own courses and tried them with community. Some of them were actually requested by the community. And one of the courses that I um, taught was on feminist and queer theology in Spanish with a community, we are queer community in Puebla, Mexico. And they were the ones who asked this because of the work I, I was doing with Teología Sin Vergüenza, a podcast, um, in which it's also the same idea. It's like sharing theological education uh, with a broader audience, in that case, very particular. So, and it's in Spanish. So. I'm with this community and I want them to do a, a final project in which they share with the world what they have learned. And so they, I I asked, I said, I want you to do something to share with the world. And so you get to decide what that's gonna look like. And what they decided to do was a digital magazine. And so if everybody contributed in a different medium, medium so there, there were, all kinds of contributions to that digital magazine. Um, and so I bring up that story because there that's a way, now I'm realizing based on this conversation that that is a digital platform because I created and controlled the learning environment. We were online. I've never been in the same space with them. Um, I know them only online, virtually, digitally. And They created this thing, so it was a snowball effect, right? That they shared. But also, I want to share that there was an exchange of knowledge because it was from this community that I learned the concept of digital campaign. Like every now and then, they organize themselves to do a digital campaign around a specific issue. It can be like um, uh, people's rights to decide over their own bodies, or it can be marriage equality, or um, protests against, um, conversion therapy, you know, things that are affecting the communities. And so they, for a certain number of weeks, they are going to regularly post about this And usually they look like, like posts, like just a, a background with a hashtag and, and the, and quotes. And sometimes they have videos from different persons that they create before they they begin the digital campaign. And so I was trying to do that too for these events that happened in December to celebrate my ninth my ninth my ninth anniversary of ordination. So I did a nine week countdown to the event, but it was a digital campaign around uh, normalizing diversity. And so I use my newly acquired skills of drawing mm. to illustrate um, one each one of the nine phrases that were leading down to um, the event in which we gather. And then we presented diverse means of communication from different artists, theologians, activists. Um, and so those are ways in which I'm adapting and playing with the possibilities here. Uh And yes, thank you for pointing out, I'm not transitioning as in leaving behind, right. but as in, um, I'm expanding the classroom, right? expanding yeah. the, the world of possibilities of who can be uh, my students, but not as uh, what Paulo Freire called banking education It's not my preferred, delivery, content delivery method is not lecturing. And so that interactive um, aspect of teaching and learning has been a challenge, but clearly from this conversation, I can take away that I have been doing it uh, more or less well um, within the opportunities that we have. So I'm glad for, for you to mention that. And I want to continue to encourage our listeners um then to find ways to use digital platform to share their theological knowledge with the world and first of all find out your why and then second the why uh try to use your your own gifts and and see how can your own gifts play within this world and as um jorge stories taught us the gifts that you don't have you can always find partners um to create beautiful things between uh, more than one person, to share to share the theological knowledge online and through different digital platforms. Yeah, well, why why use different digital platforms?
1: I think that the different digital platforms comes back to the delivery question, right? Different platforms are going to provide you space to do different things. So, um, I'll give you an example. If you write, if you're a writer, right, um, and you want, there are times where you might want to submit something to a publication like a truth out or a New York Times because you want to reach that audience, the audience of that readership. But in doing so, you have to inherently um, engage their publication guidelines, which means you're limited to the type of article you're writing, how long it is, the conventions of your writing. And that might be worth it for you at that time because the type of work you want to put out in the world in order to influence a particular audience is going to fit with that platform, right? Um, but there's other times when actually you want to write more creatively. So I actually really like, um, creative nonfiction and I, myself, how my favorite types of writing that I do are always something that engages story and then theory and then history, and then comes to a, so what it's kind of like a very basic formula I have in my head, um, But that type of more long form writing, often there aren't a lot of platforms out there for the types of audiences I want to want to engage. And so I use my own platforms, in this case, Medium, which is a technology, but is a technology for a blog that I think is very helpful because it's easier to share. So that's why I use that um, in order to publish it within my own guidelines, which is. Whatever I want to do that day, right? Um, I'm not limited to the conventions of a publication. I think similarly too, it if you go into more the visual work, right? If you do a TikTok, you have one to three minutes. So you might use that because you actually want to in one to three minutes create a story that's easy to share, that's easy to digest, that's maybe funny, that uses backgrounds, that uses images. But the point is that the delivery method is going to guide the type of impact that you want to have, similar to Instagram, similar to Twitter. And Twitter, you have a few, you know, 280 characters. You can write a thread, you can use GIFs, you can use images, but it's going to be a different delivery of the content than if you were to write an op ed, right? So the point I'm making here is that the platform is going to, in some ways, dictate the delivery. So I think the first question that you have to ask, which goes back to what I was saying before, the first question is why? Why are you doing this to begin with? Who do you want to touch through your work? Who do you want to engage through your work? Why is it that that is important to you? And why do you think that's meaningful to the world? Once you answer that, the question of how do you want to disseminate that knowledge then becomes a secondary question. And if you want to disseminate it visually, You might go to a digital platform that allows you to do so. So whether it be uh, Instagram, whether it be TikTok, whether it be YouTube, whether it be your own website that's designed to be able to host videos, which not not all websites are, right? If you want to do it through words, you might go to a publication that already exists. You might start your own damn publication. I mean, whatever, the sky's the limit. You might create your own website. You might host a medium blog. You might do whatever you want. The point I'm making is that, The delivery method is to me a secondary point. First, people need to be clear on why they're doing what they're doing and who they want to touch through their work. From there, the rest is easy because you can also do a thing which I call content stacking where you write an op-ed and then you do a TikTok on the op-ed and then you create an Instagram post on the op-ed, and then you go ahead and you create a Twitter thread on the op-ed, and then you share it through a digital campaign on the op-ed, and then you go ahead and create a YouTube lecture, and then you do a podcast, right? So again, The point is, why are you doing this work? And if it's important enough that you want to reach as many people as possible, then you just find all the different mediums and then switch the content for the delivery method in order to be able to have that impact across multiple platforms.
0: Yes. So there is a connection between the, what I'm hearing is like, the delivery is your guidance because once you know what it is that you want to say and what you want to accomplish then you find the right delivery method for that right to 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 do that but then there's a a very uh strong relationship or close with audience right like yes. you kept mentioning audience and so is there a way Do you say like, once you decide this then it's easy to do this i'm like I still don't know how, like, I'm very clear, <laughs> right? I'm very clear that um, this other space that I created and the work I'm doing is, um, for example, for for people who have been hurt by the church and who want to practice spirituality. And it's like, they don't want a relationship with Christian church, but they want a relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but but that I have not been able to, okay, now what does that mean in terms of like, what is the best plas- platform for this, right? Yeah. Um, or how do I communicate that or where are those people like so how do you do that transition? Like once you what's the easy step that I'm missing here? Yeah. Like, I, think, I have those answers and how to do it.
1: You know, there's this um book. Uh, it's called, I have it here somewhere. It's called Getting It Published. And it's a book literally on how do you publish books. Um and there's this line in the introduction that I read that has really stuck with me, which is that the difference between a writer and someone who writes, is that a someone who writes says, I am writing about X topic. Someone who is a writer instead says, I am writing about X topic for Y audience in order to do Z goal. Right? So... The distinction here is that the reason I talk about audience so much is because audience is central to the why, right? When I'm doing something that when I'm writing an op-ed where I really want to impact progressive liberals in New York City, I am writing in a different way. I'm writing in a way that uses language that's familiar to them. I'm assuming many of them are college educated. I'm assuming many of them are uh, liberal or progressive. I'm assuming many of them um, have certain values and reject certain things, right? So I'm using those types of uh, conventions of language to appeal to them. Um, But I'm also writing in such a way where I want to challenge the assumptions that they themselves have, right? That means, by definition, that my op-ed isn't for everyone. It's not designed to be for everyone. It's designed to be for a particular audience. And I think the same is true all over the place, right? When I was leading a political education class or doing a, a facilitation on the Young Lords at the People's Church in East Harlem uh, back in May, I wasn't facilitating that in the same way that I, was, I would facilitate it in my classroom, right? Yeah. Because in my classroom, I'm leading and I'm asking how, even though the content is exactly the same, we're using the same documentary, the same readings, but in my classroom, I'm pushing them of how do we become better historians. In this class, in this facilitation with a community, I'm asking, why does this matter to this community now, right? And as a result, the questions I'm asking in that public facilitation are completely different. The way I'm engaging with the community is d- completely different. The way I'm establishing my authority as a teacher in the community is completely different. So again, the, the link, I think, for me is to make the distinction that is asked in that, in that book of getting it published, which is um, not just what am I writing, what am I speaking, what am I posting about? but for whom and this necessarily means that not everything you do is going to be for everyone Mm -hmm. and I think to me this really connects and I I know our time is coming to a close but I think this really connects to something that James Cone taught me when he was alive may he rest in peace but one thing he talked about and you know James Cone in many ways one of the founders of black liberation theology that um, passed away a few years ago One thing he said was, the idea of the universal is a farce. Instead, we need to ask, how does the particular speak to the universal? Mm. Connecting that to this question of public scholarship, when you're asking about audience, you necessarily need to have a targeted uh, delivery of content for a specific audience. That means that the TikTok you make might not be for everyone. Not everyone is going to find it relatable. But perhaps, perhaps by having it targeted to an audience, the particular, you might be able to reach more people because more people will be able to engage it, understanding that it's not for them. But how can I still understand and draw something out of this, right? So thinking about your audience, about you know folks who are um, disaffected, disillusioned by the church, right? that is a particular audience. And we could get even more specific of like, is are they Spanish speakers? Are they Latin Americans? Are they from the US, whatever the case may be? Irrespective, by having that specific audience in mind, it means that your scholarship, your public scholarship is going to be geared in a conversation with them. And I bet what will happen is that as you promote it to your primary audience and engage your primary audience, other audiences are come along, going to come alongside and say, you know what, I don't necessarily identify with this one part of this, but I do find a lot of value in these things because it connects to my experience in this way. So again, the point is that from the particular, we can start poking towards the linkages that bring the possibility of the, not so much the universal, but the possibility of interconnectedness. I think that's a better framing. Mm-hmm. So the the easy jumping point for me is, not just what am I writing, what am I posting, what am I creating, but for whom? And being specific about that for whom is central to doing work that I think is more impactful um, and more real, more genuine. Because if we are writing just for everyone, we actually end up writing for no one. It's more impactful to have a conversation with a specific community in mind and invite that community to further conversation. Because last thing I'll say, this connects back to that thing of having integrity as a public scholar. If that same community you're speaking to says, hey, actually, I think you missed the mark here, right? I think that you wrote something, you said something that I think we actually really disagree with. And you come up around and say like, actually, I definitely see where you're coming from. I see where my art might've promoted ideas that I don't necessarily agree with. I see where my op-ed promoted things that um, I don't necessarily agree with because I have this new knowledge from the community. Then you have the integrity to be able to respond to the community, again, your audience and say, actually, this is where I've grown and change because I'm speaking with an audience that I'm in community with, right? And through that back and forth, we're able to cultivate a voice and a platform that isn't just us as individual public intellectuals, but rather coming alongside and raising up the public intellect of the entire community for a conversation that's outside of ourselves, but that can hopefully help promote a better world.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for being here. I um... I am delighted to invite the audience today to consider theological education uh, being shared through digital platforms. Um, I am thankful for Jorge, who uses the language of public scholar, and for Liz, who uses the language of popular educator, and for the connections uh, between our work, the similarities as people who are concerned with sharing this knowledge to build community, to center that community and the interrelationships of that community rather than the individual scholar. That's amazing, thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for this conversation. And I wanna thank all of those who joined us here today. It's been great to talk about this uh, conversation and um, I'm happy to be with you, Liz, thank you so much. Mm This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at
0: htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent
1: does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.